If you have your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Um, I'm very excited about starting a new series today called Things That Last as we will journey through the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I will start in verse 1 and go all the way to verse 11. So let me read that for you and then we'll pray. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that's the elders, and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Um, so this series, Things That Last, last the premise is actually pretty simple. Um, there are things in this world that fade, right? You know this. We know this in our minds, right? There are things in this world that fade. Money fades. Success fades. Circumstances fade. But we live our lives as if those things are everlasting, right? Um, like really, when you think about, for myself at least, the motivations for the reasons and the things that I do what I do, a lot of times it's because I am living for something that in the end is going to fade. It's, it's going to go away, but in the book of Philippians, we're shown, man, the things that last, like the things that really matter in life. Like today in our text, we're seen lasting, we're shown lasting friendship. Like if we're going to have friendships that last, that throughout the ups and downs and, and hurts that can come by us being in a church together, because some of the most hurtful people can be who? Church people, right? <laughs> and so, so if we're going to create an environment, a community here that lasts, it's only got to be built on one thing on Christ. And then you see themes like that all throughout this book, and it's awesome. We see there is lasting satisfaction in Christ, that if we're going to be truly satisfied in this life, it's only going to come from Christ. We're seeing that the lasting prize in life is Christ, that we run the race where? Towards Christ. But so many of us, including myself, we run the race towards something else. Um, we're, seeing, we're shown what lasting peace is like. You know, where he says in Philippians 4, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. He says, the God of peace will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. And so we're shown what lasting peace is. And I'm so excited to walk through this book that in my prayers that by the end of it, man, we will have confidence that if we're walking towards Christ, if we're walking in Christ, then in our life, we will be following the path of things that last and not the things that and so first, before we jump into the text today, let me give you some pretty interesting background on the book of 
Philippians. So Philippi, the city of Philippi, found its origins on the heel of a civil war, right? And I actually didn't know much about this. Some of you history buffs might know a lot more about this than I do. But in 44 BC, and so don't lose me here. I know history can be kind of boring for some of you, but this is so cool. This is so cool. Okay, so in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated by the Roman Republic forces of Brutus and Cassius, okay? Now, Philippi became famous as the place where Mark Antony and Octavian finally ended the Civil War. Now, what happened after that battle that ended the Civil War is that a bunch of those veteran soldiers ended up living in that area, and they went on to establish the city of Philippi. So that's how Philippi found its origins. It was modeled after Rome. They made it a little mini Rome. So it was laid out in similar patterns, the architecture, um, everything was copied extensively. The coins had Roman inscriptions on it. And Philippi was also a major trade route. So it sat in between two major ports. And so it was common to have a vast diversity of people and travelers coming through the city. So think about that, what, what that creates in a city. Okay, you have this incredibly nationalistic and, and prideful um, former Roman soldiers that create this Roman pride in the city. And then you have these uh, travelers coming in and out of the city that create this very diverse feeling. So it was a very patriotic city, and it was a very diverse city. So what you have in Philippi is these people who say, we are committed to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. But then you have Asians and Greeks and all these people coming through the city. So now think about this from the church of Philippi, right? They praise, that the people in Philippi praise Caesar as Lord. They praise Caesar as Lord. They are very patriotic. They were committed to Rome. And so it makes sense that as you read through the book of Philippians, you'll see this theme that Paul makes it a point to remind the church in Philippi who the true king is, who the true Lord is, that they are citizens of heaven, right? Because that idea, citizenship, was a major point of resistance that the church faced in Philippi. And so if you look at the flow of the book, and this is pretty cool, you'll actually be able to identify that there is a, a flow to one portion of the book, and then out of that portion becomes a, set, a steady thought, right, that has kind of the same theme, that the first half of the book all leads to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10. And then after Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10, every, all the train of thought comes out of that portion of the book, okay? And so Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10 is the central piece. And so let me read that to you. This is what we're working towards. And then when we get there, this is what we'll be working out of, if that makes sense. Okay, so Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is the central piece of the book. He says, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse nine, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus 
Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it makes sense, right, that Paul would emphasize the kingship of Christ as the central piece of this letter. Like when you considered that it took a true and real act of faith in the city of Philippi to declare, no, Caesar's not Lord. He's not. Jesus Christ is Lord. In their environment, that took a real act of faith, that you'll see the implications of Jesus as king throughout this book. Now, the book of Philippians is also significant because it's the only place in Paul's letters where he wasn't criticizing someone. Like if you look at Ephesians, Galatians, the Corinthians, who were a hot mess, like they were, if you think our church is bad, they were a hot mess, okay? And um, it's the only place where he doesn't criticize, right? He, do, he doesn't criticize them. It's only encouragements. He, he's telling them in, in other churches and other places, stop doing this and start doing this. There, there's none of that in Philippians. You will not find those first few verses that I read, you will not find that kind of language and intimacy anywhere else in Paul's letters. He loves these people. He loves these people. And it's clear that Paul views this church, and so I think it's good for us to look at it. Paul views this church as a maturing church, as a church that legitimately loves the Lord. And it's an encouragement. This book is an encouragement, and it's an encouragement in the form of a thank you letter. Because Paul is writing support, and he's telling the Philippians, and we learn this in Philippians 2, that he's telling them that the God that they sent to bring him the support from the church, that he's okay because that guy almost died bringing money to Paul. So he writes them a thank you letter to thank them, but also to let them know that that guy is okay. Okay, with all that said, let's dive in. I'm gonna start in verse three. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what's neat about this letter is that we actually have a starting point, okay? We have a starting point, a clear timeline for the origins of the church in Philippians. We actually know what Paul is referring to when he references their partnership from the first day. So hold that place in Philippians 1 in your Bible and go with me to Acts chapter 16. And we actually get to read about, which we don't always get this, we actually get to read about the conversion stories of the first members of the church in Philippi, Acts 16, and I'm going to start in verse 13. Acts 16, verse 13. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. So they're in Philippi, right? And he says, where we suppose there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So this is the first member, the first person of the church in Philippi. So we learn that Lydia was from Thyatira. That means that she is of Asian background, okay? And she's also a seller of purple goods, which means that she probably sold clothing. And purple in the Roman Empire was not cheap. The only people who wore purple 
were those in high esteem, Roman royalty, okay? If you wore purple, it meant that you had status and you had wealth. And this purple dye was known as Tyrian purple. And if you know this, I'm going to be very impressed. This was fascinating to me. It was extracted from a sea snail, a sea snail called Murex branderis. Did anybody know that? Oh my goodness, look at you. I was reading that this week and I was like, what in the world is history, right? Um, so this girl has done very well for herself. That stuff, it was not easily accessed and it was not cheap. And so this girl, Lydia, man, she was something else. She's done very well for herself. In fact, in verse 40, we learned that the church in Philippi actually met at her house. So she had a house big enough for the church in Philippi to meet there. And so the first thing we learn about her is that she's wealthy and she's a businesswoman, right? She's got her own business. And the second thing we learn about her is that she's a worshiper of God. She's a God-fearer. That means, if you think about in this context in, in, in Philippi, that means that she has rejected paganism, okay? She has rejected paganism. She does not believe, like many others during this time, that there are multiple gods. She doesn't believe that there's a God of the air. She doesn't believe that there's a God of the sea. She doesn't believe that there's a God of the tree that she needs to worship. She believes that there is one God, and she wants to live out a moral life. She's most likely an intellect, right? She thinks, um, she thinks deeply, and she seeks out truth, and she has gathered with other women to learn about God, to listen to the scriptures taught. And when Paul shows up, it says that God opens her heart to pay attention to the words of Paul. Man, just be in that moment. Like, think in your mind about Lydia sitting there and listening to Paul explain how the Old Testament scriptures all point to one person. As a worshiper of God, a God-fearer, a Gentile who worshiped God, she would have known two things, right? Two things from the Old Testament scriptures. One, that there was a law, that God has revealed his law. And two, she would have understood the necessity of sacrificial atonement. That when you fail to keep God's law, you are meant to offer a sacrifice to God as a way of atoning for your sins. So a blood sacrifice that would remove her sins from her so that she is justified before God. And enters Paul, who's able to connect the dots for her and to say it is Jesus Christ who is the ultimate and final atonement for you. And God opens her heart to understand that. It's beautiful that, that Paul engages her intellect and her reason, her logical thinking, and God opens her heart to receive, her, receive it, and God saves her. And it says that she's baptized, and she invites Paul and his crew to stay at his house. So this is the first person of the Philippian church, an Asian woman who had a successful business, who God opened her heart to hear the scriptures expounded by Paul. Now, in verse 16, we meet a girl who is the exact opposite of Lydia. This, this girl is actually the first person of the Philippian church because it says in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer. So this is Paul on his way to meet Lydia, okay? It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So this girl has a demonic spirit. And I don't know, there's some of you in here that I know have ever experienced like the physical presence of a demonic spirit 
Katie and I have seen it several times overseas especially, but it, it's a different kind of world, and it's a different feeling. Like you can feel the darkness coming from that person and that thing. And so this demonic spirit starts following them. This, the owners were using this demonic spirit in this girl as a way to make money. In verse 17, it says, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And it says she kept doing this for many days. And Paul becomes really annoyed by that, okay? Now, I want, let's think about this. Because we read that, and look at what she's saying. This girl, she's technically not saying anything that's false, if you think about it, right? Paul and his crew were servants of the Most High God. They were proclaiming the way of salvation, right? So why does he get greatly annoyed with them? Wouldn't he be glad that someone's following them around, shouting these things? Well, Paul becomes greatly annoyed because he doesn't want people to think, to think that he can associate, that it's okay for him to associate with this girl who's demon-possessed, and he doesn't want to be associated with the owners of this girl. And so Paul shuts it down. He says, this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Notice here what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't reason with the girl. He doesn't sit down and say, let me open the scriptures to you. He doesn't invite her to Lydia's house and then calmly discuss Jesus with her. In a moment of Holy Spirit power, he speaks directly to the demon and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It's pure Holy Spirit power. He commanded the thing that ruled her on the inside that in turn made her a slave on the outside to release her. And in that moment, she goes from being a slave to the demon inside her and a slave to human beings to knowing the freedom that is in Christ. It's pure power. And it's completely different than the conversation he had with Lydia. God saves this girl in a complete and unique way. And then, so the owners get mad because their money, their source of money is taken away. And so in verse 20, it says, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, listen to what they say. Here's the heart of the issue in Philippi. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Do you see the heart of the issue in Philippi? When you look at the book of Philippians, these men are Jews and they are asking us, Romans. It's racial. It's, it's racial and it's nationalistic pride. And so in verse 20, the crowd joins in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And here we meet our third person, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And it says this, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. He's ordered to keep them safely, but he puts them in stocks. And in the first century, stocks were this brutal and horrific practice of contorting your body in all sorts of different directions and locking you up 
where you couldn't move at all. Your, your legs would cramp up and sometimes your body would just give up and fail. And so here's Paul and Silas. They're in prison. The jailer has been ordered to keep them safe and they're in stocks. And what are they doing? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul has got to be the most frustrating human being for people who want to discourage him, right? He's got to be so fresh. This guy is torturing Paul and Silas and they are singing hymns. There is nothing you can do or say to this guy that would put him in despair. He is steadfast in faith on Christ. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And you're like, okay, what in the world? (laughs) Why is he going to kill himself? This was a common practice among Roman soldiers. If a prisoner was lost, whoever was responsible for that prisoner was killed. So instead of waiting for someone else to just punish him and execute him, he takes it upon himself to take his own life because he thinks the prisoners have escaped. So verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights. He probably can't believe it. And he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. It says they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And this is what he does in verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. The guy who tortured them is now washing their wounds. It says he brought them up to the house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, so let's think about these three people. You have Lydia, you have the slave girl, and you have the jailer. Okay, for the jailer, this guy is blue-collar Roman soldier. He's nationalistic, he's duty-bound, and we know that because of how quickly he tried to commit uh, to kill himself. He is committed to the customs of Rome. He's committed to their way of life. He lives and breathes according to the expectations of a Roman soldier. Now, look how God goes after him. He doesn't go after him through the intellect, Right? It's not some kind of crazy, powerful, moment, powerful Holy Spirit moment. What does God do? God saves this man through an act of compassion. That in a moment, Paul and Silas were given the opportunity to prove what they were singing about. When they had the opportunity to run, they stayed. They showed this man that his life is valued even more than their Own. This guy could have just walked in and killed Paul and Silas right there and claimed that they were trying to escape. There was no reason for Paul and Silas to believe that he wouldn't kill them. Just moments before, he had tortured them. But Paul and Silas, in an act of compassion, said, We're still here. Don't kill yourself. We're still here. And they proved what they were singing about. They imitated Christ. Paul and Silas, by valuing this man, by showing him compassion, they were able to show this man, hey, we're not going anywhere. We believe what we sing about. So this is how the church begins, right? 
a wealthy businesswoman from Asia, well put together and respected, whom God saves through her intellect. A Greek demon-possessed girl. I mean, think about these three people. A Greek demon-possessed girl, slave, dirty, broken, and disrespected, whom God saves in a moment of Holy Spirit power. A blue-collar Roman soldier whom God saves through an act of compassion. And so here's two questions, right, that I think we need to consider before looking at Philippians. One, what do these three have in common? Yes. On paper, they have absolutely nothing in common. Absolutely nothing. They are of three different ethnicities. One's Asian, one's Greek, one's Roman. They are three economic classes. One's wealthy, one's middle class, one's poor. The only thing they have in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church people forget about that way too often. That the only thing that we have in common is Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. It doesn't matter what differences we have on paper. It doesn't matter what economic class we belong to. It doesn't matter um, our background. It, it, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we forget that so quickly. We forget that we are binded to one another by the grace of Christ, that none of us have earned our place here, but that Christ has bought our place here. We forget this way too quickly. The second question is that I, want, I just want us to notice, so maybe this is a little side road. What ministry strategy does Paul use to save them? Right, you think about it, as, as, as a church, I think we can become so obsessed with what's our ministry strategy, right? What's your strategy for reaching people? Note, I want us to look at what ministry strategy does Paul use to save them? Because this topic, a church's strategy, right, the way that God saves people or the way that God grows people, it can become a very divisive issue for churches, right? That we can have uh, these camps where people will say, well, here's how your church should be. Here's your strategy. Here's how God saves people. Here's how God grows people. That some churches will have an intellect-only strategy, right? Where it's only thinking and studying and logically understanding the scriptures. Some churches will have a strategy that's only focused on the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's power to redeem, and the Spirit's power to take from bondage to freedom. And then some churches will have what's called a missional strategy, where it's live by example and model others what it means to follow Christ. And churches get into this mindset where they say, this is the right way. This is the way that we should do it. This is the only way that works. We should only reach people by intellectually understanding the scriptures. But then you have some that say, talking only intellectually about the scriptures creates legalism. And so then you have people who say, well, the only thing that works is modeling to people the life of Christ. And then some people will say, the only thing that works is the power of the Holy Spirit and his ability to change. And you get these camps. My question is, what do we see here in the Bible? What do we see here in God's word? Because I see no strategy besides proclaiming the gospel of Christ to those that need Christ in whatever way we can. The origins of the Philippian church show us that God can save in whatever he, way he pleases, whatever way he wants, that he can save through the intellect, he can save through a moment of Holy Spirit power, he can save through our model and example. And I bring this up because you're like, no one cares about this but you, Okay. I bring this up because I have people all the time, they come up and they say, we need to be doing this and our church only needs to be doing this and that doesn't work and that doesn't work. Man, like the only thing I see here is 
Christ crucified and risen? Is that being shared? And scripture shows us that God will save however he determines a person to be saved. That God will not just use one way to grow and to save and to sanctify a person, but that God will use multiple ways. So let's not, as a church, become over-concerned with our strategy, but let's become extra diligent in proclaiming Christ. That he has died. He has, has risen. And it's in that place that God will open our hearts to understand the scriptures. It's in that place, it's in that place that you'll see the Holy Holy Spirit's demonstration of power. It's in that place that we will model Christ and his work. And even in this room, and I'd be willing to bet that for most of you, you can identify with one of those three people more than the other two, right? I can, I can, I'd be willing to bet that. That for some of you, you engage God primarily through your intellect, that you logically think about the scriptures. For some of you, 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 you engage God primarily through the work of the Holy Spirit. And for some of you, you engage God primarily through the modeling of Christ, right? That when God saved you, it was in your mind. Like God opened your heart to understand the scriptures. For some of you, you were enslaved to a sin and God brought you from slavery to freedom. It was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And for some of you, someone just simply showed you the example and compassion of Christ. And you said, I want that, right? That God has brought us all here in different ways and that we engage with God differently. But I like to think, I like to think that God took these three people, Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, and they were able to learn from one another, right? Don't you think that happened in their church? That, that as they shared their stories with one another and how God worked in them, how God saved them, and how they commune with God, how they learn from God, how God grows them, that they were able to sharpen one another, that they all saw the power of the Holy Spirit through the slave girl's testimony. They all saw the scriptures, right? And, God under, and us understanding and God opening our hearts to understand how justification works in the scriptures through Lydia's testimony that they all saw the importance of us modeling the example of Christ through the jailer's testimony. There's nothing in this book, in the book of Philippians, that would make us think that one of them thought that they were better than the other two. Christ, I mean, Paul loves these people deeply, deeply. And I like to think that they learned from one another. So I say that to say, let's be careful about judging others and how they engage with Christ. Let's be careful, because all of these things matter. But when we talk with one another and we talk about how we engage with God and we talk about our strategy as a church, let's ask the question, do we agree on these things? Do we agree that Christ has been crucified and he's risen from the grave? Do we agree that his word is true and inerrant and that we should submit ourselves under it? Do we believe that we should live a life that is walking by the Spirit. If we agree on these things, then we can be partakers of grace. If we agree on these things, then we can learn from one another and how God grows us and how God sharpens us and how God equips us that in relationship we learn something new about God that maybe we're uncomfortable with, that maybe we've never, a way that we've never engaged with God before. Whether intellectually, through the Spirit's power, or through the model and example of Christ. And so, with all that said, let's go to Philippians 
chapter 1, verse 3. And as I read this, I'm going to read it slowly. As I read this, think about their stories. Lydia, slave girl, the jailer. Like He's writing to specific people here. People that have had real hurts, real issues, real struggles. And, the, and here's what he says them, tells them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's thinking about the moment on the road when the slave girl was freed. He's thinking about when the jailer almost killed himself. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here's what he tells them. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. That's what he says. He says, how I yearn for you how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Like this is lasting friendship. This is lasting friendship. It's lasting because it's built on the gospel. It is the only thing that binds them, and it is the only thing that will sustain them. And look, I'm going to be real honest here. I know for a fact that some of you struggle here because it's like, you're like, man, these, these people here, they, they, they don't have a, I don't have a lot in common with them, right? Or you, you come to a place like this, and, and sometimes it's hard because um, honestly, it feels like the only thing that you have in common with people is the gospel, right? And you're like, why do I come? Like, You come because that's the only thing you have in common with people. That is the thing that binds us, and it is the thing that sustains us. It is the only thing that can create lasting friendship. Like, look, I have friends who, like, our basis of our relationship is the Astros. And when we get together, the only thing that we can do is complain about how the Astros got too much heat, and they were the scapegoat when they cheated in 2017. But that friendship... It doesn't go beyond that. It it doesn't sustain. It's not lasting. The only thing that lasts, the only relationships that are truly going to last, not even family, what's going to last is the gospel. It's the only thing that true relationships can be built on. And when churches become divided, when we become divided, it's typically because we focus on things that are not of the gospel. We begin to focus on things that are about us. We begin to focus on the things that do divide us, and we ignore the only thing that can sustain us. So I want to show you three things here, three truths from this prayer, right, uh, from what Paul tells these people um, that is helpful for us and things that we should desire for one another. So three things real quickly. The first thing, and I love this, is that we learn from these first few verses in Philippians that we should have confidence that God will complete the work that God has begun in us and the work that God has begun in others. He says in verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Think about what Paul is saying here. Lydia, the work that God did the day that God opened your heart to understand the scriptures, 
He's going to complete it. Slave girl, the work that God did when he freed you from that demon, he's going to complete it. Jailer, the day, the work that God did, that day that you almost died, he's going to complete it. And I would say the same thing to you. Listen, the work that God did when you were five, (laughs) he's going to complete it. The work that God did when you were a teenager, he's going to complete it. The, The work that maybe God started just in the last month, He's going to complete it. Listen, if you belong to him, if you're one of his saints, if you're one of his children, he will make sure, he will ensure that you persevere. God will not forsake you. He will not leave you or give up on you. He will continue to work in you. But there may be in times in your life when either you run from him, you feel like he's forsaken you, you feel like he's left you, when you you choose something else, that doesn't mean the reality that God's going to complete his work doesn't mean that it's this like perfect little graph that says, I started here and I finished here. I started from the bottom, now I'm here, right? It's not this perfect little graph, but life is hard and there's a lot of suffering. But here's the promise that God will complete his work in you. I I don't believe that it's Paul writing this. I believe that this is the words of God, that Paul is his vessel, writing these words down for God, a Holy Spirit inspired. And Paul wrote these words down, not just for the people in Philippi, but for every believer that would ever read them, even for us. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That means that he will hold you fast through the trials and sufferings, through the seasons of doubt, through the times of fear, through the times of anxiety, even in times when you choose sin over him. He will hold you fast and complete the work that he has begun. And for some of us, this is super encouraging, but for some of us, this is super discouraging. Because right now, in your mind, you are thinking of a son, a daughter, a brother, or a sister, a parent, that friend you had in college, that person you work with that used to follow Christ, but they don't anymore. And this can be super discouraging. But if you believe in what God's word says, then he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Not on your timing, not on my timing, but he will save and he will grow in whatever way he chooses. So I just want to encourage you, whether you're someone who you've had the ups and downs, the fears, the doubts of following Christ, or you know someone in your family or a friend, he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And so there's hope here. This is a book of encouragement. This is encouraging because we say, even though our eyes lie to us, right? Our eye, we look at it and we say, man, they, they don't know him. They don't know him. They don't understand him. They don't want him. Man, we have no idea what God is doing. That God has proven over and over again that he will work how he wants to work. And how he wants to work is that if you're his, if you are in Christ, then you will be his at the end. You will be his at the end. And this is encouraging for us because that means we can come alongside one another and we can be honest about our doubts, honest about our fears, and honest about our sins. And people will come alongside you and say, 
He will finish the work that began, he, he started in you. You have fear, you have sin, you have struggle, you have doubt, you have anxiety. He will complete the work that he started. You won't complete it. I, even as your pastor, I have no authority to complete it in you. Only God can sustain you. And it is our role as the family of God to come alongside our brothers and sisters and say, look, I know that you're hurting. I know that you're discouraged, but he will complete his work in you. Even though it doesn't look like it, he will complete his work in your daughter, in your son, in your brother, in your sister. He will complete the work that he's doing because his word says it. That's faith. That's believing and saying, I believe that you, your character does not compromise. I believe that your word is true. And so I get down on my knees and I pray for that person. I believe that you can save in whatever way you choose. Think about the people he's writing to. This is a jailer, right? Duty bound to Rome who almost killed himself, sold out to Rome, who is now a slave and sold his duty out to Christ. It's a slave girl. Literally, demon-possessed. The demon is called out, and she is no longer a slave to a demon, but a slave to Christ. I mean, what makes us think that we can judge and determine who we think can be saved and who can't be? It is God who does the work. It's God who does the work, and so I just want to encourage you with that. Second is that we yearn for one another with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, for God is my witness, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word yearn can seem weird. Like, it's not something we typically say to one another. Like, I don't come up to you and say, hey, just so you know, I yearn for you. Like, that's just not normal, normal language that we do. But it's, it's that feeling of longing. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's the same affection that drove Jesus to the cross. That there is a, a binding of the gospel here. That I care about you. I want you to know that you're loved in Christ. I value your friendship that we should desire to one another, know one another. We should desire to walk with one another. And third, we should desire that our love may grow deeper and that we may grow in our knowledge and discernment so that we may help each other approve what is excellent. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that our love for Christ and for one another would grow. And this isn't a complicated thing. I'm not preaching about anything that's difficult. There is, there is something in us that desires for each one of us to grow in our knowledge of God, knowledge of his word, our knowledge of one another, and grow in our discernment. That means that we would long for one another to know him more, that we would long for one another to know how to walk in this world and make decisions for Christ. And he says, you should approve what is excellent. And later in Philippians 4.8, he tells them what is excellent. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, think on these things, that we should walk alongside one another to approve what is excellent. So if you see someone who's living in truth, and you come alongside of them, uh, alongside them and you say, I approve this in you, and this is excellent. I want to walk with you in this. If you see something that is commendable in someone, that you walk alongside them and you encourage them. If you see someone who's walking in purity, then you come alongside them and you encourage them in that. Right? And on the flip side, we have to be able to lovingly and honestly denounce the things that are not excellent. That's part of being a family too, that we come alongside and we denounce what the things that aren't 
excellent, that when we aren't pure, when we aren't being commendable, that we can come alongside one another and be honest about that, and that the, we would be humble in receiving that. And here's the last thing I'll say as a reminder from Paul. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. I love that language. You are all partakers with me of grace. It's right for me to feel this way about you because we all participate in the grace of God. This is who we are, that we are all participants of the grace of God together. No one has earned their place in this faith family, but Christ, through the spilling of his blood, has purchased your place here, that if we truly understand the cross of Christ, then we don't walk in this place. And this, this is important. This is important for me to remember too. We don't walk in this place in pride, where we think that we're better than everyone else here, that we know we have all the answers and we know what to do. We don't walk in this place prideful, but we also don't work in, walk, out, walk in this place in despair, meaning I don't belong here, meaning that no one here is going to love me, everyone here is going to judge me, that I don't have a place here. We don't walk in in pride, and we don't walk in in despair, because you have not earned your place here. No one has. We're all participants in the grace of God together. And so we walk in in confidence, free to love one another, because we're not trying to earn anything from each other. We have everything we need in Christ, and so we're free to love, to be humble, to walk in kindness. What if the church was filled with people whose only aim was to preach Christ crucified and risen and to walk in freedom and love one another? What if every person that filled the church was not a consumer? They didn't act as a consumer. Give me, give me, give me. But they walked in freedom to say, I want to give. I want to serve. How can I come alongside of you? Man, what would this place look like if we just walked in humble confidence in the grace of God and loved one another? I think it would cast out fear. I think we would see a lot less anxious people because we're not trying to earn anything. I think we would have confidence and you would have lasting friendships because you're not looking to get, you're looking to give and to serve. I think it would change who we are. I think it would change who we are. 